0: Section sixteen of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section sixteen. A London Suburb. One of our English summers looks, in the retrospect, as if it had been patched with more frequent sunshine than the sky of England ordinarily affords but i believe that it may be only a moral effect a light that never was on sea nor land caused by our having found a particularly delightful abode in the neighbourhood of london in order to enjoy it however i was compelled to solve the problem of living in two places at once an impossibility which i so far accomplished as to vanish at frequent intervals out of men's sight and knowledge on one side of england and take my place in a circle of familiar faces on the other so quietly that i seemed to have been there all along it was the easier to get accustomed to our new residence because it was not only rich in all the material properties of a home but had also the homelike atmosphere the household element which is of too intangible a character to be let even with the most thoroughly furnished lodging-house a friend had given us his suburban residence with all its conveniences elegances and snuggeries its drawing-rooms and library, still warm and bright with the recollection of the genial presences that we had known there, its closets, chambers, kitchen, and even its wine-cellar, if we could have availed ourselves of so dear and delicate a trust, its lawn and cosy garden nooks, and whatever else makes up the multitudinous idea of an English home. He had transferred it all to us, pilgrims, and dusty wayfarers, that we might rest and take our ease during his summer's absence on the continent. We had long been dwelling in tents, as it were, and morally shivering by hearths which, heap the bituminous coal upon them as we might, no blaze could render cheerful. I remember to this day the dreary feeling with which I sat by our first English fireside, and watched the chill and rainy twilight of an autumn day darkening down upon the garden, while the portrait of the preceding occupant of the house, evidently a most unamiable personage in his lifetime, scowled inhospitably from above the mantelpiece, as if indignant that an American should try to make himself at home there. Possibly it may appease his sulky shade to know that I quitted his abode as much a stranger as I entered it. But now, at last, we were in a genuine British home, where refined and warm-hearted people had just been living their daily life, and had left us a summer's inheritance of slowly ripening days, such as a stranger's hasty opportunities so seldom permit him to enjoy. Within so trifling a distance of the central spot of all the world, which, as Americans, have at present no centre of their own, we may allow to be somewhere in the vicinity, we will say, of St. Paul's Cathedral, it might have seemed natural that I should be tossed about by the turbulence of the vast London whirlpool. But I had drifted into a still eddy, where conflicting movements made a repose, and, wearied with a good deal of uncongenial activity, I found the quiet of my temporary haven more attractive than anything that the great town could offer. I already knew London well, that is to say, I had long ago satisfied, so far as it was capable of satisfaction, that mysterious yearning, the magnetism of millions of hearts operating upon one, which impels every man's individuality to mingle itself with the immensest mass of human life within his scope. Day after day, at an earlier period, I had trodden the thronged thoroughfares, the broad, lonely squares, the lanes, alleys, and strange labyrinthine courts, the parks, the gardens, and enclosures of ancient studious societies, so retired and silent amid the city uproar, the markets, the foggy streets along the riverside, the bridges—I had sought all parts of the metropolis, in short, with an unweariable and indiscriminating curiosity— until few of the native inhabitants, I fancy, had turned so many of its corners as myself. These aimless wanderings, in which my prime purpose and achievement were to lose my way, and so to find it the more surely, had brought one, at one time or another, to the sight and actual presence of almost all the objects and renowned localities that I had read about, and which had made London the dream city of my youth. I had found it better than my dream, for there is nothing else in life comparable, in that species of enjoyment, I mean, to the thick, heavy, oppressive, sombre delight which an American is sensible of, hardly knowing whether to call it a pleasure or a pain, in the atmosphere of London. The result was that I acquired a home-feeling there as nowhere else in the world, though afterwards I came to have a somewhat similar sentiment in regard to Rome, and as long as either of those two great cities shall exist, the cities of the past and of the present, a man's native soil may crumble beneath his feet without leaving him altogether homeless upon earth. Thus, having once fully yielded to its influence, I was in a manner free of the city, and could approach or keep away from it as I pleased hence it happened that living within a quarter of an hour's rush of the london bridge terminus i was oftener tempted to spend a whole summer day in our garden than to seek anything new or old wonderful or commonplace beyond its precincts it was a delightful garden of no great extent but comprising a good many facilities for repose and enjoyment such as arbors and garden seats shrubbery, flower-beds, rose-bushes in a profusion of bloom, pinks, poppies, geraniums, sweet-peas, and a variety of other scarlet, yellow, blue, and purple blossoms, which I did not trouble myself to recognize individually, yet had always a vague sense of their beauty about me. The dim sky of England has a most happy effect on the coloring of flowers blending richness with delicacy in the same texture but in this garden as everywhere else the exuberance of english verdure had a greater charm than any tropical splendor or diversity of hue the hunger for natural beauty might be satisfied with grass and green leaves for ever conscious of the triumph of england in this respect and loyally anxious for the credit of my own country it gratified me to observe what trouble and pains the English gardeners are fain to throw away in producing a few sour plums and abortive pears and apples, as, for example, in this very garden, where a row of unhappy trees were spread out perfectly flat against a brick wall, looking as if impaled alive, or crucified, with a cruel and unattainable purpose of compelling them to produce rich fruit by torture. For my part, I never ate an English fruit, raised in the open air, that could compare in flavor with a Yankee turnip. The garden included that prime feature of English domestic scenery, a lawn. It had been leveled, carefully shorn, and converted into a bowling-green, on which we sometimes essayed to practice the time-honored game of bowls, most unskillfully, yet not without a perception that it involves a very pleasant mixture of exercise and ease, as is the case with most of the old English pastimes. Our little domain was shut in by the house on one side, and in other directions by a hedge-fence and a brick wall, which last was concealed or softened by shrubbery and the impaled fruit-trees already mentioned. Over all the outer region, beyond our immediate precincts, there was an abundance of foliage, tossed aloft from the near or distant trees with which that agreeable suburb is adorned. The effect was wonderfully sylvan and rural, insomuch that we might have fancied ourselves in the depths of a wooded seclusion, only that at brief intervals we could hear the galloping sweep of a railway train passing within a quarter of a mile, and its discordant screech, moderated by a little farther distance, as it reached the Blackheath Station. That harsh, rough sound seeking me out so inevitably was the voice of the great world summoning me forth. I know not whether I was the more pained or pleased to be thus constantly put in mind of the neighbourhood of London, for, on the one hand, my conscience stung me a little for reading a book, or playing with children in the grass, when there were so many better things for an enlightened traveller to do while at the same time it gave a deeper delight to my luxurious idleness to contrast it with the turmoil which i escaped on the whole however i do not repent of a single wasted hour and only wish that i could have spent twice as many in the same way for the impression on my memory is that I was as happy in that hospitable garden as the English summer day was long. One chief condition of my enjoyment was the weather. Italy has nothing like it, nor America. There never was such weather except in England, where, in requital of a vast amount of horrible east wind between February and June, a brown October and black November, and a wet, chill, sunless winter. There are a few weeks of incomparable summer, scattered through July and August and the earlier portion of September, small in quantity, but exquisite enough to atone for the whole year's atmospherical delinquencies. After all, the prevalent sombreness may have brought out those sunny intervals in such high relief that I see them, in my recollection, brighter than they really were. A little light makes a glory for people who live habitually in a gray gloom. The English, however, do not seem to know how enjoyable the momentary gleams of their summer are. They call it broiling weather, and hurry to the seaside with red perspiring faces in a state of combustion and deliquescence. and I have observed that even their cattle have similar susceptibilities, seeking the deepest shade— or standing mid-leg deep in pools and streams to cool themselves at temperatures which our own cows would deem little more than barely comfortable. To myself, after the summer heats of my native land had somewhat effervesced out of my blood and memory, it was the weather of paradise itself. It might be a little too warm, but it was that modest and inestimable superabundance which constitutes a bounty of providence instead of just a niggardly enough. During my first year in England, residing in perhaps the most ungenial part of the kingdom, I could never be quite comfortable without a fire on the hearth. In the second twelvemonth, beginning to get acclimatized, I became sensible of an austere friendliness, shy but sometimes almost tender, in the veiled, shadowy, seldom-smiling summer, and in the succeeding years, whether that i had renewed my fibre with english beef and replenished my blood with english ale or whatever were the cause i grew content with winter and especially in love with summer desiring little more for happiness than merely to breathe and bask at the midsummer which we are now speaking of i must needs confess that the noontide sun came down more fervently than i found altogether tolerable so that I was fain to shift my position with the shadow of the shrubbery, making myself the movable index of a sundial that reckoned up the hours of an almost interminable day. For each day seemed endless, though never wearisome. As far as your actual experience is concerned, the English summer day has positively no beginning and no end. When you awake at any reasonable hour, the sun is already shining through the curtains, you live through unnumbered hours of Sabbath quietude, with a calm variety of incidents softly etched upon their tranquil lapse, and at length you become conscious that it is bedtime again, while there is still enough daylight in the sky to make the pages of your book distinctly legible. Night, if there be any such season, hangs down a transparent veil through which the bygone day beholds its successor or, if not quite true of the latitude of London, it may be soberly affirmed of the more northern parts of the island, that to-morrow is born before yesterday is dead. They exist together in the golden twilight, where the decrepit old day dimly discerns the face of the ominous infant, and you, though a mere mortal, may simultaneously touch them both with one finger of recollection and another of prophecy." i cared not how long the day might be nor how many of them i had earned this repose by a long course of irksome toil and perturbation and could have been content never to stray out of the limits of that suburban villa and its garden if i lacked anything beyond it would have satisfied me well enough to dream about it instead of struggling for its actual possession at least this was the feeling of the moment although the transitory, flitting, and irresponsible character of my life there was perhaps the most enjoyable element of all, as allowing me much of the comfort of house and home, without any sense of their weight upon my back. The nomadic life has great advantages if we can find tents ready pitched for us at every stage. So much for the interior of our abode, a spot of deepest quiet, within reach of the intensest activity. But even when we stopped beyond our own gate, we were not shocked with any immediate presence of the great world. We were dwelling in one of those oases that have grown up, in comparatively recent years, I believe, on the wide waste of Blackheath, which otherwise offers a vast extent of unoccupied ground in singular proximity to the metropolis. As a general thing, the proprietorship of the soil seems to exist in everybody and nobody, but exclusive rights have been obtained here and there, chiefly by men whose daily concerns link them with London, so that you find their villas or boxes standing along village streets, which have often more of an American aspect than the elder English settlements. The scene is semi-rural. Ornamental trees overshadow the sidewalks, And grassy margins border the wheel tracks. The houses, to be sure, have certain points of difference from those of an American village, bearing tokens of architectural design, though seldom of individual taste, and as far as possible, they stand aloof from the street, and separated each from its neighbour by hedge or fence, in accordance with the careful exclusiveness of the English character which impels the occupant, moreover, to cover the front of his dwelling with as much concealment of shrubbery as his limits will allow. Through the interstices you catch glimpses of well-kept lawns, generally ornamented with flowers, and with what the English call rockwork, being heaps of ivy-grown stones and fossils designed for romantic effect in a small way. Two or three of such village streets, as are here described, take a collective name, as, for instance, Blackheath Park, and constitute a kind of community of residence with gateways kept by a policeman, and a semi-privacy stepping beyond which you find yourself on the breezy heath. On this great, bare, dreary common I often went astray, as I afterwards did on the Campagna of Rome, and drew the air tainted with London smoke, though it might be, into my lungs by deep inspirations, with a strange and unexpected sense of desert freedom. The misty atmosphere helps you to fancy a remoteness that perhaps does not quite exist. During the little time that it lasts, the solitude is as impressive as that of a western prairie or forest but soon the railway-shriek, a mile or two away, insists upon informing you of your whereabout, or you recognize in the distance some landmark that you may have known, an insulated villa, perhaps, with its garden wall around it, or the rudimental street of a new settlement which is sprouting on this otherwise barren soil. Half a century ago the most frequent token of man's beneficent contiguity might have been a gibbet and the creek like a tavern sign of a murderer swinging to and fro in irons. Blackheath, with its highwaymen and footpads was dangerous in those days, and even now, for aught I know, the western prairie may still compare favorably with it as a safe region to go astray in. When I was acquainted with Blackheath, the ingenious device of garroting had recently come into fashion— and I can remember, while crossing those waste places at midnight, and hearing footsteps behind me, to have been sensibly encouraged by also hearing, not far off, the clinking hoof-tramp of one of those horse patrols who do regular duty there. About sunset, or a little later, was the time when the broad and somewhat desolate peculiarity of the heath seemed to me to put on its utmost impressiveness— At that hour, finding myself on elevated ground, I once had a view of immense London, four or five miles off, with the vast dome in the midst, and the towers of the two houses of Parliament rising up into the smoky canopy, the thinner substance of which obscured a mass of things, and hovered about the objects that were most distinctly visible, a glorious and sombre picture, dusky, awful, but irresistibly attractive, like a young man's dream of the great world, foretelling at that distance a grandeur never to be fully realized. While I lived in that neighborhood, the tents of two or three sets of cricket players were constantly pitched on Blackheath, and matches were going forward that seemed to involve the honor and credit of communities or counties, exciting an interest in everybody but myself, who cared not what part of England might glorify itself at the expense of another. It is necessary to be born an Englishman, I believe, in order to enjoy this great national game. At any rate, as a spectacle for the outside observer, I found it lazy, lingering, tedious, and utterly devoid of pictorial effects. Choice of other amusements was at hand. Butts for archery were established, and bows and arrows were to be let at so many shots for a penny. "'there being abundance of space for a farther flight-shot "'than any modern archer can lend to his shaft. "'Then there was an absurd game of throwing a stick at crockery-ware, "'which I have witnessed a hundred times, "'and personally engaged in once or twice, "'without ever having the satisfaction to see a bit of broken crockery. "'In other spots you found donkeys for children to ride, "'and ponies of a very meek and patient spirit, on which the cockney pleasure-seekers of both sexes rode races and made wonderful displays of horsemanship by way of refreshment there was gingerbread but as a true patriot i must pronounce it greatly inferior to our native dainty and ginger beer and probably stauncher liquor among the booth keepers hidden stores the frequent railway trains as well as the numerous steamers to greenwich have made the vacant portions of Blackheath a playground and breathing-place for the Londoners, readily and very cheaply accessible, so that, in view of this broader use and enjoyment, I a little grudged the tracts that have been filched away, so to speak, and individualized by thriving citizens. One sort of visitors especially interested me. They were schools of little boys or girls, under the guardianship of their instructors, Charity schools, as I often surmised from their aspect, collected among dark alleys and squalid courts, and hither they were brought to spend a summer afternoon, these pale little progeny of the sunless nooks of London, who had never known that the sky was any broader than that narrow and vapory strip above their native lane. I fancied that they took but a doubtful pleasure being half affrighted at the wide, empty space overhead and round about them, finding the air too little medicated with smoke, soot, and graveyard exhalations to be breathed with comfort, and feeling shelterless and lost, because grimy London, their slatternly and disreputable mother, had suffered them to stray out of her arms. Passing among these holiday people, we come to one of the gateways of Greenwich Park, opening through an old brick wall. It admits us from the bare heath into a scene of antique cultivation and woodland ornament, traversed in all directions by avenues of trees, many of which bear tokens of a venerable age. These broad and well-kept pathways rise and decline over the elevations and along the bases of gentle hills which diversify the whole surface of the park. The loftiest and most abrupt of them though but of very moderate height, is one of the earth's noted summits, and may hold up its head with Mont Blanc and Chimborazo, as being the site of Greenwich Observatory, where, if all nations will consent to say so, the longitude of our great globe begins. I used to regulate my watch by the broad dial-plate against the observatory wall, and felt it pleasant to be standing at the very center of time and space. There are lovelier parks than this in the neighborhood of London, richer scenes of greensward and cultivated trees, and Kensington especially in a summer afternoon, has seemed to me as delightful as any place can or ought to be, in a world which, some time or other, we must quit. But Greenwich too is beautiful, a spot where the art of man has conspired with nature, as if he and the great mother had taken counsel together how to make a pleasant scene, and the longest liver of the two had faithfully carried out their mutual design. It has likewise an additional charm of its own, because, to all appearance, it is the people's property and playground, in a much more genuine way than the aristocratic resorts in closer vicinity to the metropolis." it affords one of the instances in which the monarch's property is actually the people's and shows how much more natural is their relation to the sovereign than to the nobility which pretends to hold the intervening space between the two for a nobleman makes a paradise only for himself and fills it with his own pomp and pride whereas the people are sooner or later the legitimate inheritors of whatever beauty kings and queens create as now of Greenwich Park. On Sundays when the sun shone, and even on those grim and sombre days when, if it do not actually rain, the English persist in calling it fine weather, it was too good to see how sturdily the plebeians trod under their own oaks, and what fullness of simple enjoyment they evidently found there. They were the people, not the populace, specimens of a class whose Sunday clothes are a distinct kind of garb from their weekday ones, and this in England implies wholesome habits of life, daily thrift, and a rank above the lowest. I longed to be acquainted with them, in order to investigate what manner of folks they were, what sort of households they kept, their politics, their religion, their tastes, and whether they were as narrow-minded as their betters there can be very little doubt of it. An Englishman is English, in whatever rank of life, though no more intensely so, I should imagine, as an artisan or petty shopkeeper, than as a member of Parliament. The English character, as I conceive it, is by no means a very lofty one. They seem to have a great deal of earth and grimy dust clinging about them, as was probably the case with the stalwart and quarrelsome people who sprouted up out of the soil, after Cadmus had sown the dragon's teeth. And yet, though the individual Englishman is sometimes preternaturally disagreeable, an observer standing aloof has a sense of natural kindness towards them in the lump. They adhere closer to the original simplicity in which mankind was created than we ourselves do. They love, quarrel, laugh, cry, and turn their actual selves inside out, with greater freedom than any class of Americans would consider decorous. It was often so with these holiday folks in Greenwich Park, and, ridiculous as it may sound, I fancy myself to have caught very satisfactory glimpses of Arcadian life among the cockneys there, hardly beyond the scope of bow-bells. Picnicking in the grass, uncouthly gambling on the broad slopes, or straying in motley groups, or by single pairs of love-making youths and maidens, along the sun-streaked avenues. Even the omnipresent policemen or park-keepers could not disturb the beatific impression on my mind. One feature, at all events, of the golden age, was to be seen in the herds of deer that encountered you in the somewhat remoter recesses of the park, and were readily prevailed upon to nibble a bit of bread out of your hand. But, though no wrong had ever been done them, and no horn had sounded, nor hound bayed at the heels of themselves or their antlered progenitors for centuries past, there was still an apprehensiveness lingering in their hearts, so that a slight movement of the hand or a step too near would send a whole squadron of them scampering away, just as a breath scatters the winged seeds of a dandelion. The aspect of Greenwich Park, with all those festal people wandering through it, resembled that of the Borghese gardens under the walls of Rome, on a Sunday or a saint's day, but I am not ashamed to say it a little disturbed whatever grim ghost of Puritanic strictness might be lingering in the sombre depths of a New England heart, among severe and sunless remembrances of sabbaths of childhood— and pangs of remorse for ill-gotten lessons in the catechism, and for erratic fantasies or hardly suppressed laughter in the middle of long sermons. Occasionally, I tried to take the long-hoarded sting out of these compunctious smarts by attending divine service in the open air. On a cart outside the park wall, and, if I mistake not, at two or three corners and secluded spots within the park itself. A Methodist preacher uplifts his voice and speedily gathers a congregation, his zeal for whose religious welfare impels the good man to such earnest vociferation and toilsome gesture that his perspiring face is quickly in a stew. His inward flame conspires with the too fervid sun and makes a positive martyr of him, even in the very exercise of his pious labor insomuch that he purchases every atom of spiritual increment to his hearers by loss of his own corporeal solidity, and should his discourse last long enough, must finally exhale before their eyes. If I smile at him, be it understood, it is not in scorn, he performs his sacred office more acceptably than many a prelate— these wayside services attract numbers who would not otherwise listen to prayer, sermon, or hymn from one year's end to another, and who for that very reason are the auditors most likely to be moved by the preacher's eloquence. Yonder Greenwich pensioner, too, in his costume of three-cornered hat and old-fashioned brass buttoned blue coat with ample skirts, which makes him look like a contemporary of Admiral Benbow, that tough old mariner, may hear a word or two which will go nearer his heart than anything that the chaplain of the hospital can be expected to deliver. I always noticed, moreover, that a considerable proportion of the audience were soldiers who came hither with a day's leave from Woolwich, hardy veterans in aspect, some of whom wore as many as four or five medals, Crimean or East Indian, on the breasts of their scarlet coats, The miscellaneous congregation listen with every appearance of heartfelt interest, and for my own part, I must frankly acknowledge that I never found it possible to give five minutes' attention to any other English preaching. So cold and commonplace are the homilies that pass for such under the aged roofs of churches. And as for cathedrals, the sermon is an exceedingly diminutive and unimportant part of the religious services if, indeed, it be considered a part, among the pompous ceremonies, the intonations, and the resounding and lofty-voiced strain of the choristers. The magnificence of the setting quite dazzles out what we Puritans look upon as the jewel of the whole affair, for I presume that it was our forefathers, the dissenters in England and America, who gave the sermon its present prominence in Sabbath exercises, The Methodists are probably the first and only Englishmen who have worshipped in the open air since the ancient Britons listened to the preaching of the Druids, and it reminded me of that old priesthood to see certain memorials of their dusky epoch, not religious, however, but warlike, in the neighborhood of the spot where the Methodist was holding forth. These were some ancient barrows, beneath or within which are supposed to be buried the slain of a forgotten, or doubtfully remembered battle fought on the site of greenwich park as long ago as two or three centuries after the birth of christ whatever may once have been their height and magnitude they have now scarcely more prominence in the actual scene than the battle of which they are the sole monuments retains in history being only a few mounds side by side elevated a little above the surface of the ground ten or twelve feet in diameter with a shallow depression in their summits. When one of them was opened, not long since, no bones, nor armor, nor weapons were discovered, nothing but some small jewels and a tuft of hair, perhaps from the head of a valiant general, who, dying on the field of his victory, bequeathed this lock, together with his indestructible fame, to after-ages. The hair and jewels are probably in the British Museum, where the pot-shards and rubbish of innumerable generations make the visitor wish that each passing century could carry off all its fragments and relics along with it, instead of adding them to the continually accumulating burden which human knowledge is compelled to lug upon its back. As for the fame, I know not what has become of it. End of section 16